From the frustration and joys that come with raising black children in this day and age, to the compromises made and challenges faced in different industries, Black Men Speak discusses the unique and shared experience of being a black man in America. Each week I interview fellow black men who work in a variety of fields and have confronted and overcome the limitations placed on them in our society. Black Men Speak is hosted by me, Keith Dent. When I picked up this book and read Grey Boy, Finding Blackness in a White World by Cole Brown, I just knew I wanted to have him on the show. Never had anyone captured what I and countless others felt growing up as a young person of color and privilege in a predominantly white school so vividly. I wanted to talk with him to get an essence of the man behind the words. Before we hear from Cole, I will read an excerpt from his book. It's about being a token black person. And for the listeners that don't understand what that means, Lumumba Siegert from the Harvard Crimson put it this way. What is the token black person? The token is not supposed to be your everyday black person. The token is the good black person. You know, the black person that doesn't adhere to all the negative stereotypes of black people. People of other races feel a little less threatened by him. Apparently, the token is different from all other black folk. However, he's still black enough for people to mention his name when talking about diversity. So let's start the show. Uh, Tokens develop a segment of society that is unconstrained by the markets of second-class citizenship. We are sheltered from the overt manifestations of structural racism, the most unjust elements that largely define the black plight or foreign to us. Thus, we are, sa- we are saved the burden of confronting our difference. Our environment is one of opportunity, and we are molded into both products and pursuers of that opportunity. Our aspirations in youth are constrained by our imagination alone, and these imaginations float freely over long stairs from parents and around attitude-inspired suspension. The reveal occurs only when these fanciful ideals collide head-on with the jarring reality beyond the veil that privilege has erected. A reality that our counterparts in less forgiving environments have been socialized into since birth. Uh, well, you know, that's hard hitting. Uh, so, you know, that is an excerpt from our guest tonight. And Cole Brown, and he's the author of this book, uh, as you can see it here, Gray Boy. Uh, he was raised in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. Cole Brown is a Philly kid at heart. While spending childhood summers between Ethiopia and the Midwest, Cole matured in Philadelphia's predominantly white private schools and neighborhoods. An experience that delivered an awareness of race class from a young age. After graduating high school, Cole moved to Washington, D.C. to attend Georgetown University as a finance major. Of course, anyone that's watched the show know that's my alma mater, too, so I'm excited about that. But landmarks events such as the death of Michael Brown and the election of Donald Trump caused Cole to rethink his original plans. Cole graduated from Georgetown with a major in justice and peace studies and a passion for storytelling. During his time at Georgetown, was inspired to begin penning this book, um, and the the working title or the title full title is "Gray Boy: Finding Blackness in a White World." So, Cole, hey, how you doing? Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. There we go. Uh, it's good to be here, Keith. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. I'm 
glad you're on tonight. And um, yeah, I can't wait uh, to talk about this book. I actually read it twice. <laughs> um, shout out to my man, wow. Victor, Nick, Victor Nicholson, um, who is an avid reader. And he had it posted on his, uh, on his Facebook page. And I was like, great boy, that's an interesting uh, book. And he, and he was, um, and I'm not going to, I'm going to wait for you, tell, for you to tell me. But he's like, oh, yeah, he's from Georgetown. And I looked into it. I was like, oh, I definitely have to read this book because, you know, <laughs> um, being the fact that I graduated in 1989, you know, we might we had a different perspective of what Georgetown was about. And I, I can't wait to get in that a little bit. But for those who haven't read Gray Boy, just give us a kind of a brief synopsis of what it's about. Yeah. Um, so, again, thanks for having me. I think that you you got at it a bit in that in that excerpt you just read. Um, Gray Boy is part memoir. It's it's largely my story, but it's also uh, the stories of several others that I interviewed as well. And the thing that we have in common is that we are black kids that grew up in white spaces, privileged white spaces often. And it's about that experience. About, it's about growing up in an environment of dissimilarity and uh, how that impacts your sense of identity uh, and traveling towards that sense of identity through adolescence and then eventually sort of the early college years. Um, so it, it charts my path towards hopefully finding an affirmed black identity and, and the ways in which the world might have told me uh, something different about myself over the years. And so I know you touched upon the fact that it was your, you know, your teenage years and, and just for mm-hmm. probably most of us, just that alone can be very, can be jarring and we all can have stories to tell. But what yeah. made you feel compelled to um, want to put it in a kind of a book form as opposed to just, you know, keeping it in your journal? Yeah. So you've, uh, you've already brought up Georgetown, our shared alma mater, uh, I think that was record time. I don't think it took <laughs> more than 30 seconds into the conversation <laughs> for Georgetown to come up, which is rightfully yeah. so. I'm a proud Hoya. And uh, and in, this started as an essay for a class at Georgetown. Um, so I was in a I was in an entrepreneurship class, actually. And the um, on the first day, the professor told us that we would have to write a uh, a book on a business we wanted to start. His version of a book was really a very long essay. But when I heard just the word count of that very long essay, I immediately knew that this is the topic I wanted to dive into. I think I made up some, you know, made up diversity business or something just so I could talk about this topic. This this really was a story that I think was I felt needed to be out there. Um, I felt as though I hadn't seen myself reflected in much uh, of storytelling in the past. Um, so I wrote the essay for that class and then basically didn't put it down and continued on for for about four years until I had a full length book uh, to share. In four years, that that's a long that's a long time. And it's so a long it, time. And is was it because of the fact that, and I'm sure you shared, you know, you know, your journey and what you were doing. Did mm-hmm. you find that you needed more stories to tell, or were people telling you stories that you felt needed to be added into the book? Um, I think there's a couple of factors that it that is the reason why it took so long. One is that I wasn't, um, like I didn't major in English or creative writing. I wasn't a storyteller. So some of that was just time that it took to learn how to write. That that took a long time, frankly. Early drafts of the book were just not ready to be shared. So that was a lot of the, 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 the years there. Uh, but then part of it is also that the book in some ways tracks that journey for me in real time. You know, had I had I rushed to publish it early, I would have missed much of the Trump years. I would have missed, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the some of the recent protests we had. I mean, there was there was key things that have happened in those years, both in my personal development, but also in the world that I think the book needed um, to feel complete. So, so I, I think all of the that time was actually necessary to get to the product that I ended up at. 
Okay, yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I hold on to that thought because I did, you know, coming from a, a different perspective, where mm-hmm. uh, you were actually in the city at the time, and I was, you know, I'm in New Jersey, and yeah. being, uh, you know, with with kids, you know, mm-hmm. our concern was well, what's gonna be the future for them? And I mean, we can ask it now, but you were in the thick of it, um, being in the city, so. As a as a young black man, what was the overall s- sense that you got how people felt during that time period? And you're talking about during the election of 2016. Yes, yes. Um, so I was a I was a junior at the time. I actually think I was in this class that we're talking about um, when when that happened. And um, there's a chapter in the book, as you would have seen, the big reveal, which is which yes. was entirely written during that week um, and has been largely untouched in the years since. Uh, and the reason I kept it that way is because I wanted to keep the sense of just like mortal terror that people felt that week, that I think that four years of normalization of abnormal behavior has caused us to forget. And so, so that week I was, I was terrified. And, and I think a lot of people on campus were terrified. I mean, people forget that like in DC, you could walk across campus and not hear a sound for four days. You know, like there was like grown men crying in the street. I mean, it was like, it was, it was, there was a real sense of endangerment um, that I think a lot of people felt. I was no different. I was terrified for my personal future, our collective future, the future of dear loved ones, both, um, you know, low income loved ones, my sister and, and all of the many comments that had come out about his combative views of women. I mean, there were so many reasons to be concerned. I think many of those fears, frankly, had been confirmed over the past four years. Uh, but that first week was difficult. And so was it weird to see actually uh, those fears actually come to fruition right before the election when they storm, when, you know, his minions kind of storm yeah. the Capitol? Yeah, right, right after the election, uh, yeah. right before the inauguration. Yeah, That's I right, um, right. so I was I was at that time I was in Australia and a lot had changed in the four years, both obviously in the country. But for me personally, um at that time, I was I was a political commentator in, in Australia and was speaking on, on the news pretty regularly. So and because of the time difference, like we went to sleep in Australia and everything was normal. And then we woke mm-hmm. up in Australia and there was a Viking on the Senate floor. Like there was no there was no buildup. Like we didn't we didn't see right. the we did we didn't see the any of it. Um, literally, I woke up and as you might imagine, my phone was just blowing up with images of of all the terror that we saw. So, I mean, as a political commentator, that was a big work day. I had to get to work. Um, But as an American, that was uh, disturbing and so incredibly predictable. I mean, so foreseeable. Um, And I think that that was part of why it was so disturbing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, let's so let's dive into the book a bit. Uh, I just wanted to get some of those housekeeping items out of the way. Yes. So one of the things I thought, which was fascinating, uh, you talked about the black table. So mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about this quote because I, I thought the way you uh, you phrased it is almost like a almost like there was a rite of passage <laughs> you had to get mm-hmm. to. So um, when guy and it's a, when guys at the black table told me I talked white, I was left without a life raft to hold on to. I was welcomed to the table the first day, but their but their respect and certainly their trust and affection were privileges I had to earn, and to do so I'd have to keep up. So what did you mean when you felt you needed, you had to keep up and, and yeah. what changes did you have to make to do that? Yeah. Um, so I think that a bit of context here might be necessary. So I, I grew good. up in a private schooling system and um, 
and felt at one uncomfortable with many of my white peers for much of the duration of my time in that private schooling system. But I think for a lot of kids, things began to change in middle school and early high school. Um, that certainly was the case for me. And my race began became a factor in those relationships. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't feel as though I was really seen by many of my white peers any longer. So I think that I think it was ninth grade when I when I decided to switch lunch tables to the black table. The black table is, you know, both the literal table where all the black kids sat in the lunchroom. It's a well-known institution across private schools. And and it was also all of us that sat around it. Like we were the black table. And when I made that move, I think I write in the book, people people referred to it as coal going back to Africa. Uh, that's the kind of environment we were in. And I guess what I'm trying to get at in that quote is that there were cultural differences, um, as one might imagine. I mean, there were, you know, we, we, this, this group, the group around the black table had such stark differences to so many of the, our white peers and white counterparts. And I had grown up, you know, frequenting the spaces with those white peers and white counterparts. I'd grown up, you know, being with them at the country club and, and, uh, in their homes and, and, um, I no longer felt comfortable in that world uh, as I once did. Uh, here I was entering a new world with much different norms um, and and felt as though I, I wasn't, I wanted to be comfortable there, but I wasn't quite yet. Okay. Uh, I had to learn how to, I had to learn how to talk in a way that was familiar. I had to learn how to dress in a way that was familiar. I had to learn in a way, you know, like so that we could, so that we could sort of find common ground as well and build those relationships. Those are still to this day. Those are, those are some of my brothers. Those are my closest friends on earth. Right. And how, how long did it take you to actually feel like, Oh, look, I'm, I'm comfortable here. This, these are my people. Yeah. I think probably half a night, you know, maybe a semester, but there's also, I mean, there's an element of like learning the, the, the rules of the road, but there was also an element of learning that it didn't really matter. I mean, there was, there was also an element of like, of getting there and being like, oh, wait a second. Like, it doesn't really matter whether I speak exactly like everybody else around the table. Right. Um, right. You know, uh, there were much deeper things that we shared. I mean, really, and, and what really bonded us together was just a sense of loyalty, a sense of, a sense of we had to be protective of each other because this world was not going to be. Um, and that cro- that was much more significant than any sort of superficial quality, right? So that's that's interesting because I, when I was in high school, I actually had to go the opposite way. So mm. I went to the black table uh, and felt you know comfortable there, uh, you know, because you know my first girlfriend was black and and we had moved. I didn't grow up in New Jersey. We had moved, and then uh, there was an incident where. Um, uh, I think it was called a nerd or something where, so then I no longer felt comfortable or felt like an outsider. So I had to gravitate yep. to people that kind of just knew me for me. So I, I found that very fascinating. The fact that you were able to do, you know, you, you had, you did that or felt because you had, yeah. you had a sense that you weren't comfortable or things were changing. And then, you know, when we, when we got to Georgetown, the black table was the place yeah. to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you yeah. know, and we, and, and it was a it was a place of comfort and peace, and yeah. you felt you could just be yourself. So you know, I, and I read it, I write about in the book that that my sister and I obviously raised as similarly as two human beings can be. Took very different journeys in that in that regard. My sister never sat at the black table. She always you know she stayed close with the girls that she had gone to kindergarten with all the way through. She still is to this day. I think both of those journeys are legitimate. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. you kind of you kind of got to find your own way in this world. I I was not at the black table at Georgetown largely. 
I think that's okay. You know, like I, I don't think one should feel too pressured to do one way or another. Uh, it's just kind of the journey that I had. But I got the sense that there was a piece of being able to just be you in the book. Yeah. Right? I mean, at Georgetown, yeah. you were able to have yeah. whatever friends you were yeah. able to have, and it didn't really matter, which I thought yeah. was fascinating. Because, you know, in, in, at, in high school, I went to school, as we've discussed in Philly, and it was so, I think I write this, like it was so black and white. It was so, and like the lines were mm. so clearly drawn. I mean, um, like this is where all of the black kids sat in one corner. <laughs> and like, okay. this is this is the kind, like it was, um, so it was really difficult to try to do both. It was difficult to try to sort of fluidly cross those lines. At Georgetown, there was just more possibilities. And as a result, you know, the society there kind of had to, had to deal with mixed up people a bit more. I mean, there was, you know, there was the Middle Eastern kids and there was the mm. South American kids and, mm -hmm. you know, so much international influence. And there wasn't really a role for, like in high school, there wasn't a role for a black kid that had come from the same prep schools as any of the white kids. And I think though, as a result of that, um, I and a couple others I knew were granted the privilege of being able to kind of cross clicks and lines pretty fluidly. And, and as a result, I have a friend group that is largely black, but also largely everything else as well. And, right, and I right. feel privileged to have that. And of course, I didn't think we'd go this way. But in the in the fact, did it affect uh, the overall relationships as a black group as a whole? Because we've kind of talked about yeah. we uh, that in our group, we were very well connected. We were very close. Mm -hmm. We knew everybody. I'm almost to the fact that we couldn't date within Georgetown right. because everybody would be in your business, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah. And it was more of a family. Um, yeah. but did, so did you, did you get that sense that collectively as a black group, you were, you were connected? I know that that existed. I mean, black Georgetown existed, Hoya Blacks, uh, like, you know, the black house, which is for those listening is, is a literal building where, where black people congregate at Georgetown. So that world certainly existed. I felt as though I had that in high school. Like that okay. was my that was my group that was sort of us against the world. At Georgetown, I think there was at times pressure to to sort of commit yourself to that that social scene. I didn't. I mean, many of my friends did and 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 I'm mm -hmm. close with them. And I and I was granted the again, I think because perhaps we were a bit older, it wasn't like sort of you're with us or you're not. Like I was granted gotcha. the ability to 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 enter that, that space and exit that space and I could do both and so I felt I felt comfortable that way. Yeah, which is yeah, uh, which is very freeing yeah. to do. You know, exactly, you be, absolutely. You can just focus on school and and just yeah. be and just. Well, be I don't know that I did that, but <laughs> <laughs> one could. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so in the in the chapter of uh, bad, bad, not good, you mentioned mm -hmm. that you went from just being Ben's best yeah. friend to Ben's black best friend. But how did Ben actually react to that kind of statement and that? There yeah. was actually a designation that now you'd been given. Ben, as you mentioned, was my best friend since we were four years old. White guy that grew down the road, grew up down the road from me. Still is to this day. I was just talking to him earlier today. I don't know that he noticed it in the moment. I certainly did. I mean, we, we got to we got to about seventh grade. I think it was in part the influence of all of a sudden we become aware of the fact that there is another sex and and like they're mm -hmm. watching, <laughs> you know, like okay, all of a right. sudden everybody's everybody's. Uh, really acutely attuned to what girls think of us and, and who likes who and so forth. It was right around the seventh grade when, again, like I, I began being labeled Ben's best black friend. In the moment, I don't think he had the where. I mean, 
that's difficult to expect of of a seventh grade kid right, to, to right. have the wherewithal and empathy to understand that. We've had explicit conversations about it in the years since, and and he absolutely sees that. Uh, and I think very much to his credit, identifies how difficult it must have been to be the only black kid in a and and exclusively white at that time friend group. And I mean, and that's just a testament of who he is. The fact that he absolutely to you know definitely see that and to to have empathy towards yeah. that because you know if you grew up in the same area, so you can kind of surmise that he also was a privilege and therefore, you know, could have been just like, well, <laughs> you know, too, right. you know, too, right. too bad. Yeah. You know, that's just how it goes. But the fact that yeah. he was a kind of a ride or die dude is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Which yeah. is why we're close so, to this day. So you talked about kind of the mental illness that you had as yes. a result of some of the yeah. things that you went to. And then, so your mom had actually wrote you a letter. And one of the things she mentioned was that, she was deeply sorry that they missed, and I'm thinking your parent missed the minor signs for months until they became unavoidable. How did you feel that your mom actually had an idea that you were kind of suffering, but didn't act on it right away? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think that I, 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 I feel deeply for, for my mother after having read that chapter. For Again, for context, there's a chapter that I talk pretty explicitly about about having made attempts on my own life. You mentioned mental illness. There's there's nothing sort of diagnosed there, but there were certainly yeah, yeah. you know teenage depressions that that occurred. Um, the chapter immediately following that is a letter from my mother in response to that chapter, essentially. And it's impossible for me to to judge my mother's response to me at that age. One, I think there's a whole world of knowledge that I just don't understand, not being a parent. But two. Like it's hard. Like, like I can, yeah. I can see how it'd be tough to, to, right, to right. try to, to try to parent a black boy through that world that she herself did not grow up in. Mm. You know, she says, she says she misses the minor signs. I think oftentimes, you know, those minor signs only become clear in retrospect. You know, a lot of that only makes sense when you know the outcome. And, and, and on top of all of that, I should mention, like, she, she likely missed many of those signs because I was intentionally concealing them. So it's not okay. like, it's not like it happened in a vacuum. So that's all to say that I'm incredibly proud of, of how she reacted to the chapter and, and, you know, the things that she said in hers. I think it was a difficult parenting moment. And, and because it was mental, so it wasn't really physical, yeah. it was probably very, it was much easier to hide. Um, yeah. Because yeah. you could turn it off once you entered, once you entered your house, you didn't Absolutely. actually have to share any of those, you know, those issues. So, Absolutely. Um, yeah, but and so then I know, but you know, since you did focus on your mom and she was mentioned a lot in the book, I was kind of curious, you know, because I know your dad, you know, you, your mom and your dad were separated. I was wondering now what he thought about the book. So that that's that's an interesting question because I I am so often asked about how my mother reacted. I'm never uh, asked about how my father reacted. Well, this is black men um, speak, you know. So there, you go. There, there, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I don't know that we've had a full discussion, frankly, about, about all that was there and all that's not there, all that's not included, um, in the book, uh, which he's obviously attuned to. I think that, um, we have talked briefly about that chapter, bad, bad, not good. Uh, my parents were still together uh, during the years that, that that's right. discussed. Okay. And from, for many of them at least. And I think that he felt a degree of guilt, you know, as, as significant as my mother did. I think it's just difficult to, to hear that your child went through that. 
otherwise he's expressed only pride in, in terms of my, my willingness to, to get my story out there. And to his credit has never suggested that it was not my right to tell my story the way I want, even when at times it might not be the most flattering to him. He understands and understood that I needed to be honest to my own truth and, and he could share his uh, as well. So I, I think he's handled it well. Oh, great, great. How, how did you feel about that? That actually he did express a pride and a, and a, yeah. a joy that you have, that you were able to tell your story and, and be honest and honest about it. Yeah. I, when, you, when you write something like this, when you write a memoir and you discuss the other, you know, the people that end up being uh, other characters and you, the protagonist's life, um, you always end up concerned. I, I, was, I, was, I was really nervous putting this thing out there. Uh, concerned about concerned about what people will think. Right. Uh, my father was no exception to that. So of course it feels it's a it's a relief when my father or any I mean or my aunts or you know all the many yeah. family members that I have like um, I was I was concerned that you know that that any of them would would feel strongly about you know strongly negatively about what I put there. But but again to all their credits I mean like. Uh, their love and pride was much stronger than any other reaction they had. That just makes it even more better when you're, when your family mm-hmm. can get behind, you know, the things that you're yep. doing, uh, especially when you, your, your emotions are so exposed and you need that mm-hmm. comfort and uh, of your family and friends for that matter to, um, to validate what you're doing. So. Absolutely. So, there was another thing I found, you know, fascinating only because I do relationship coaching. And so yes, you talked about, you had a chapter about Cameron. Yeah. And so yeah. I wanted to read some of this uh, and then, you know, mm-hmm. kind of get your thoughts. So, um, you know, it was, and it's basically, when is this? I, your male counterpart, um, you know, of course you'll probably have to get back story, but I, your male counterpart, mm-hmm. fed on their opinions and perpetrated a broken narrative that regarded you as lesser. Yeah. I remembered also the, the sorry souls I had known who stumbled through the pubescent years, drunk on anguish, crushed by fruitless crushes. And then I, too, know the unworthy. And this is a little right towards the end. I, too, know how unworthiness feels. I'm sorry I didn't step in to remind you of your glory. I thought that was powerful for a couple of reasons. But I really wanted to get your thoughts on what, why you felt you needed to put this in the book. Um, yeah. Because it, it basically talks about you were not there. I, I looked at it, you weren't there for your sister. And so mm. I wanted to get you, you know, yeah. some thoughts on that. Yeah. So um, so this is right around the era that we were talking about a second ago when, when I become Ben's best black friend. Okay. And, you know, right that same age. And this is a letter to Cameron, who is basically my counterpart in the white girls' school across the street. She's the black girl. And our groups are starting to kind of, you know, come together and everyone just assumed that Cameron and I would have some, you know, well-fated destined love story. (laughs) I mean, it was like, it was, you know, like it was all about Cole and Cameron and neither of us, like, like we didn't even know each other. Like it was just just like, it was so, So, it was so absurd. That was just the narrative that was created. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, The letter that you just read from is essentially an apology letter because my response in that moment was one of rejection was, was to say, um, you know, you, I would never kind of thing when with the guys. And I felt I owed her an apology um, or I felt an apology should be written down because, because I didn't know sort of the broader 
forces at work there. I didn't quite understand what it meant when when the black guy in the group uh, is outwardly uh, rejecting the black girl. I did it for no reason other than sort of the pressures that were around me and my own defense mechanisms in that environment, um, not thinking about her plight and, and how she had to make her way in that world as well. So, and, and, I, and I felt, I mean, this is a slightly broader commentary about the book. I tried at all times, to be honest, like I, I really, I really wrestled with what was true and tried to get that on paper. And, and I knew I wanted to deal with relationships between black boys and black girls, black mm. boys, and white girls, uh, you know, w- w- black girls and white guys. I knew I wanted to deal with that dynamic and it just didn't feel honest to speak to it without speaking about the times where I had come up short. So that's why it, it had to come down. Mm, okay. Yeah. And so then that kind of leads to a segue to a different question because, you know, I'm a little bit older. Uh, and so do you, do you feel, um, or, and I mean, and I know you're not, I don't want you to really represent black men in general, but mm. I just want to get your take just because you're in that generation. But do you feel that, um, black men are, feel the need to have to stand up for black women or, and are they doing that? Or is it in regards to kind of relationships and dating, especially when you're in those spaces that you're, you know, uh, diverse spaces, or is it, is it kind of similar to what you're writing in the book? Men are not standing up as much as they should. Um, I think that's such a difficult question for me to answer in part because I am a black man. I think that that's, you know, that's probably a question for a black woman. I, I, I you know, a question of do you feel supported by black yeah, men yeah. rather than right, right. do I feel as though I'm supporting? Yeah. To, I mean, almost to the point that I'm, I'm not sure that I, I have another answer for it. I think that I think that certainly in just in the conversations I have, mm-hmm. many black women will say no. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. And that and that hurts. I mean, that's that because I think that that reflects negatively on on us as, you know, as black men. I think that there is responsibility there. And now I'm only speaking about my own experience, but when I look to my own experience, I look at black women that have been remarkably supportive of me. I mean, I grew Mm -hmm. up in a house with essentially just black women for a time and, and, but beyond them to, to the many girls, you know, that I have close relationships with, uh, I have always felt supported by black women. Um, uh, And for that reason, I think that it's incumbent upon us to return that. And I've tried to, you know, the, the incident we're talking about in that letter is is me at 12, 13 years old. Right. I've tried to, <laughs> yeah. I've tried to, I've tried to grow out of that, uh, and and return that support where and when I can. Yeah, I mean, in that thirteen, it is that is really difficult. Um, and I think a lot of us, if we have lived, um, grown up and and gone to diverse schools, we automatically you know, yeah. feel that because we will get lumped in, lumped together with, oh, the black girl or yeah. the few black girls. Um, and I know, was this actual letter you wrote to her or was it just part of the book? So and then did you, and did you hear from her? That's an important question. I, I changed the name. I never actually sent her the letter to be honest. And, I, and I've struggled with that in part because, um, and I stress this in the letter, like we didn't really know each other like, and like that hasn't changed. Um, oh, you know, wow. we, okay. we like, like we didn't, we didn't know each other well at all. Then, um, she left school shortly after the time we're talking about, I mean, the end of seventh grade, I'm sure if I did digging on Facebook, I could find her, but it almost felt like, well, this would be a strange thing to do because these were transgressions that happened in private. Right. Um, gotcha. and in some ways I wanted her to represent, I wanted that character to represent something as well. 
that was slightly larger than than the individual. That being said, I still wrestle with, frankly, would it have been better to to actually send it to her? Uh, I haven't received a response. No. And and they were just and they were just feelings that you had at the time. Yeah. And so yeah. was wasn't it wasn't if you it wasn't a transgression that you acted upon. Or, Correct. You know, you did. Yeah. In, in yeah. person, and then you yeah. needed to officially apologize, and and so it's right. it's. I can see why it wouldn't be something you would need to actually to do later on. So it's all good with that. Um, but kind of then the segue, since we're on the relationships, was the the great ones chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so you basically talked about how you're allowed only three great women in your lifetime. And so yeah. <laughs> what, what made one, what made you come up with that concept just for yeah. people that haven't heard about the book? And then when you're blessed with a fourth, what will you do to ensure she doesn't get away? Yeah. Um, so the, so the great ones is a chapter that comes right after the letter we just talked about. And it comes from a, a book. I mean, a movie uh, called a Bronx tale. Uh, one of my favorite good, movies. Good and, movie. and I, yeah, and a great movie. I, yes. And I, I write about this in the in the book, and I'm really not overstating it. Like I really am a big mob movie fan. I needed something to, I needed something to kind of hold that chapter together. And 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 a Bronx Tale came to mind. And and there's a speech from Sonny in a Bronx Tale when he says to Collagero, the main character, um, you know, you only get three. This she might be a great one. You only get three great ones in your life. You know, so you got to go for it. Um, so that felt like good glue to try to tell that story. <laughs> okay. I uh, I. So I did my best to tell that story. And then you ask about, about a fourth grade one. She hasn't come along yet. We'll see. Um, but I do think you learn, you learn lessons from, from, from past relationships that, you know, didn't go exactly as you wanted to. The, the, the last one of the three great ones that I write about in that chapter, um, it's clear by the end as we're coming to a close that, that she's much more ready to move on than I am. That taught me a lot about laying it all, all out there up front uh, rather than withholding and, and ultimately ending up feeling as though you lost something. So hopefully, hopefully I can, I can do that work up front on the next one, if there is one, because I think I would have, that, that could have gone better had I done that. Yeah. And, and when you wrote, I'm sh wrote about that. I was like, yeah, that's tough because, you know, I think when men get to that point and then it's like, wait a minute, now you're, yeah. I'm yeah. now I'm being rejected. What, what's right. going on with right. that? And so yeah. it can be as you can create a sense of bitterness, but you didn't, you didn't do that. No, no. I, in fact, I have, I have, good, I mean, not necessarily close relationships with all three, but certainly very positive relationships with all three of the people we're talking about. Uh, I'm actually probably the closest with, with uh, the last in the line, which is Anna in the book. And no, I mean, I, how could I be bitter? I right. think that, I think that they're all phenomenal people and she had to do what was best for her. Uh, we're still very close. In the beginning, I talked about tokens. Uh, I mentioned your mm -hmm. excerpts from the, from the book. And so I'd, I'd be interested to know when you have kids, mm. um, would you do differently? What would you do differently to ensure that they don't have the same experience? Um, you know, because yeah. part of me, I had some not similar issues, but, you know, high school is tough for anybody. You know, I was a mm -hmm. transplant from Texas. Uh, to New Jersey, and oddly enough, uh, New Jersey was much tougher to feel accepted than yeah. living in uh, Texas, which you, I would be surprised at, you right. know, and probably a lot of people would. But mm -hmm. and maybe because it was the times I was in high school, and my wife also had similar challenges, so we made a conscious choice to make sure we lived in a diverse 
neighborhood. Yeah. And so um, I'd be interested to know, you know, and of course we're projecting. Yes. Not a, not a parent yet, but would there yes. be some things you would, do, you would do differently uh, once everything came into place? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really, nothing immediately comes to mind and here's why. Like I, I, I don't, I don't have any misgivings about, about my childhood um, or the way I was raised. I like where I ended up. I think that it was a, it was a long, difficult road at times. Um, but I like how things turned out. And I like what we were talking about earlier in terms of um, an ability to re- relate to people of different characters with, with different backgrounds. I think that's, that's, an ex- that's, that's something that comes from having spent a lot of time in West Virginia and a lot of time in Ethiopia uh, and a lot of time in Philadelphia in three drastically different environments uh, mm-hmm. and understanding at some level that people are people. Uh, I'm proud of the way you know, my, my parents did it. And in the latter years, the way my mother did it and, and, and don't have any misgivings there. I, some people often ask, this is not the question you asked, but people will often ask, would you put your kids in a, in a private school and an independent school? And, you know, was it worth it kind of thing? Uh, and I think the answer is absolutely. Um, for me, I think every kid is different. I'm glad, you know, I thought I had a net positive experience coming out of that. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think even within the stories you, you did, get the sense that it was positive yeah. uh, in nature and that you enjoyed it. It's just some of the things that happened in your life were worth actually documenting right. and writing about. And, you know, there it might have been just blips on the screen, but you were able to share it in such detail, which I thought was yeah. that was what was the beauty of the book is that the way you wrote about it, because you if anyone's even lived in, you know, have gone through those things, you know, even if you were in sports being the only black man on the team or you know having to deal with you know yeah uh, not teammates but the people you're playing against you're just playing a game calling you out Mm -hmm. your name on the field Mm -hmm. which is utterly ridiculous um Mm -hmm. people i mean especially black men could resonate with those sort of things and so that's what i thought the real beauty of the book was is that you were able to capture that thank you thank you so much Uh, i tried hard this past year, 2020, has been a pretty active one and busy one for you. I know you, Absolutely. you know, people yeah. have really enjoyed the book. But what, you know, so personally, what has this past year taught you? Um, so this is a unique year for a lot of reasons. Yes, the book came out. Um, I was in Australia for the entire year. And I went to Australia to, as I think we discussed, to be a consultant, to work for a major consultancy. So I was essentially working, you know, during the day as a consultant and then working all night on us hours, um, as an author and then, and then, and then doing it again, add that to the stresses of an election, the stresses of the black lives matter movement and the way that it spiked and why it spiked. I add that and the coronavirus, obviously add all of that together. And I persevered through a time of heightened stress, the likes of which I had not faced before in my own life. Um, I think a lot of people can probably say that about 2020. I'm proud of myself for that. I'm proud of myself for, for like really putting, putting my nose to the grind or however that saying goes and, and pushing through what was a really, what was a really, really difficult period, frankly, um, personally and professionally. So it has taught me something about my ability to, to make it through, uh, stressful and difficult times. Uh, I'm capable of a bit more than I thought I was. Uh, and I'm happy to have discovered that. Oh, that's great. So, yeah. And, and uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, 
you were in you were in Australia. So yeah, since you were in the political commentary, was it hard to be, for lack of a better word, on the sidelines because you were so mm-hmm. far away? Yeah, uh, and and then if you know if not, were you were there some demonstrations in Australia that you were able to kind of participate in? So so there was a there was a protest in Sydney, um, which I did participate in. I the whole. It's so interesting. And I mean, the experience in Australia really spoke to me to the, how, how race is just a constructed thing, how it doesn't, how it doesn't, how it's not user universal, how it doesn't necessarily translate across borders. You know, Australia, when you're, when you're talking about a black person in Australia, you're not talking about an African-American exclusively. You're talking, right. you're primarily talking about an indigenous person with right. a drastically different life experience. That's what black means there. So when we do the, when we do the Black Lives Matter protests in the middle of Sydney, Yes, it has been inspired by George Floyd's death, but it is largely in response to the over-incarceration of indigenous people in Australia. That is a cultural difference that I think would be lost on many Americans. So it was like, it felt like I was involved. I was certainly talking about these issues a lot. I was writing about these issues in the major newspaper, but it also felt like I was on the sideline because I was so far from the epicenter of my real issue and my real commitment. That was really difficult. I mean, Australia is uh, phenomenally white, like it is, it is an incredibly white place. Seldom did I enter rooms if my mother was not there where I was one of even two black people. Mm. Um, it's difficult to process something like what we saw in the video of George Floyd's murder uh, in total isolation. So it was, that was, uh, that was hard. I mean, there's not, there's nothing else to say about that, but writing about it and speaking about it publicly felt at least like I was doing what I could to get involved. So you almost, you were bringing something to light that's not often discussed uh, in yeah. Australia. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's just, there's just not many people to discuss it. And what's interesting is that Australia is, is in many ways American centric in terms of its culture. It really looks to America for a lot of its cultural touch points. So there was people that a lot of, a lot of Australians wanted to understand it um, mm. and just had no one to speak about it had no one to listen to that was in australia so it did at times feel like i was filling a necessary void and and trying to speak truth about these issues that that matter and they wanted to know about so it felt like important work but it was just so far from from where you know where the work was really going down right uh, here in new york and in philly and etc right right so yeah that's that's great and thank you for that because you know very rarely we get to talk about viewing viewing the black lives matter Mm -hmm. movement from a different perspective since you weren't there so what's the one thing people uh because would be surprised to learn about you that wasn't in the book (laughs) i uh i worked at fox news as an intern (laughs) wow once people would be surprised to know that that i i I think i've stripped that from my linkedin (laughs) but you heard it here first i worked at fox news i got an exclusive Um, (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I worked at I worked at Fox News the summer of twenty fifteen, I think it was. I was I was young. They were the only place that would hire me. I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And I was there for a summer. And I was there the summer when there was like eighteen Republican candidates. Mm. Um there was the shooting at, at Mother Bethel AME. Um there was a jailbreak in New York that almost everyone has forgotten about. I mean it was just a crazy it was a crazy summer. It was like the best experience that I would never repeat again. It was an incredibly toxic place, but but it taught me a lot about about the world I wanted to ultimately enter. What what did you learn? Um, one just like journalistic stuff. Like I learned how to write okay. on a deadline. 
I learned how to I learned how to how to follow the news and and what to track and how to speak about politics and so that that was helpful. But also, there's something about I mean, like I don't think it's healthy the place that we've gotten into in terms of our discourse, where one side can't even like acknowledge that there might be any legitimacy in the other side. I've always tried to at least have dialogue, and and it was valuable to be what in you know across what felt like enemy lines <laughs> to mm-hmm. see to see how that place operated. Like I said, I thought it was, I thought it, it was valuable to see it because I knew that I didn't want it, um, gotcha. but valuable nonetheless. Wow. Okay. That's interesting because you, yeah, it was almost like you were in enemy territory and getting yes. this valuable, <laughs> getting this valuable yeah. information yeah. about yeah. how, you know, how they actually operate. So, yeah. Or, so I always end the sh- like to end the show. Well, thank you for yeah. all that you've uh, done, but I always like to end the show because we always have things around our mind and thoughts mm. that we may not necessarily share about what's either going on right now or maybe a couple of days ago, but what, what is on your mind right now as an African-American man? You know, it, I, I think that that's an interesting question. I, there's, there's a lot of things that are on my mind as just an American. I'm not sure how many of these are filtered through the lens of my race, but um, I've just gotten back to New York after missing the last year. And I've landed in a drastically different place than I left a year ago. And it's like, it's almost haunting. Like it's eerie to, to move around this city mm. and, um, and see mostly the shadows of what I once knew. You know, so many of the places that I loved have closed permanently. So many of the people that I love have left. Obviously many people, if I don't know directly, certainly in the broader, in my broader universe, um, have passed from, from a pandemic that I never saw in Australia. Mm. It just never hit for Australia. So I'm wrestling with, I think, the last few days and probably will continue to um, just how to move in this space that feels unfamiliar all of a sudden. That's that's really been on my mind lately. And do you feel confined uh, being the, the way the city is going? Confined to just move around and... and yeah, and yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, like for just to give a sense of the scale of the difference, like I didn't... I went almost all of 2020, I think, without putting a mask on. Like there was no COVID in Australia. <laughs> like that's that's um, amazing. When I when I left Sydney, it had gone 30 full days without a single case in the whole city. Coming here, I mean, it's drastically different here, um, and I do feel I feel confined, but I also just feel like I don't I don't know the rules anymore. There's a sense that like I got in the airport, and and there was a prevailing sense that like everybody could be a threat. Like, like you don't, you don't get too close to everybody else because everybody is a potential threat. And, and that sense of guardedness, I think is going to take a while for me to, for me to grow into. Yeah. It can be really dehumanizing. And we, we, we are very kind of immune to it now because we've been here and you're just kind of, it's almost like you're vaulting into a new universe. Right. And so the rules and to deal with that. And it's just interesting because of course I was watching the Australian open and I had heard that. Yeah. And so basically they probably had to put these rules in place just for everyone else that was coming to the, you know, coming to the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is, you know, Cole, uh, I just want to thank you for um, spending an hour with me. And uh, the, of course the book was great. Well, before we go, Linda, know what, what's actually next? What's, what's going yeah. on? Uh, yes. So um, I'm working on actually two other books right now. Um, and, and I'm hoping that there's some stuff, uh, for the screen coming down the pipeline as well. Can't say too much about everything yet, right. but I Absolutely. will be able to soon. Uh, and if, if people follow me at Cole TD Brown 
stay up to date. Hopefully there's, there's a couple exciting announcements uh, soon. I guess the other thing to mention is that, is that uh, the book was nominated for an image award and the oh, nice. image award oh, that's great. Uh, for, for debut author. Uh, so I'm eagerly looking forward to, to that uh, ceremony at the end of March as well. Oh, that's fantastic. So do you, so do you consider yourself now a writer or just a man yeah. that just wrote a wonderful book? You know, you know, we, we, um, we were talking about that earlier. I think that, I think you got to prove that the first wasn't a fluke. I mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of things that I would change about that book. Um, even today, I am proud ultimately of, of what I was able to put on paper, but I think you got to do it twice before you can, uh, walk around calling yourself a writer. So I'm working on that. I'm working on the latter. Well, what would be one thing you would change about the book? You know, the book, we, we talked about this, that the book was written over four years and I had to learn how to write. Um, as a result, there was like tens of thousands of words that were written in 2016 for a book that was published in 2020. Um, oh. and, and I felt, particularly towards the end, I felt shackled to a lot of that language um, because I no longer sounded that way. Uh, so as a result, I think if you read the book, it almost sounds like a different author as you're, as you're, as you're moving through it. And that's in part because it was, you know, like I, like I had changed significantly. A lot of that older language, I think I would go back and change if I could. But I ultimately decided to leave it in, in part because it had been four years and I needed to get this thing off. But in part because I think I wanted to show that progression over time. Uh, as I mature in the book, I'm also maturing as a writer writing the book. Exactly. And yeah, I was going to say that that's what makes it great because it does show... It does show that your mindset changed from when you were that seventh grader, yeah. sixth, seventh grader, to then how you were as adult. And you, of course, have different feet. Uh, thank you. You know. For thank you. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed uh, enjoyed this. If you haven't read the book, uh, pick up Gray Boy: uh, Finding Blackness in a White World. The book is fascinating. You will laugh. You will you will cry. And you will feel uh, part of that book because. I know, I know, I did, um, and and I come from a different world, but it's just the fact that as a black man, you can you go through these things in life, and to be able to put it in such a humanized, emotional way, uh, he did a great job, and just support the brother because you know, brother, our brothers out there need support, uh, and they need you know he's gotten it, but hey, any more support, more support is just as helpful. Black Men Speak was written and produced and edited by me, Keith Depp. Hey, if you liked this episode, please share or subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And as you know, we always end the show with a quote. And this one comes from Robert Smalls, a South Carolina congressman in 1865. He states, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. This is Keith Dent from the Black Men Speak Podcast. Peace.